Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is a Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to World Delights, show number 92. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Yes, hello everyone, hello and welcome. Back at my home, not sitting in the middle in a car, in the middle of a puddle in my hometown I'm back at home and everything's nice and sweet. My mum's back from hospital, everything's okay. A little bit sore, a little bit tender, but things are back there. And what's actually quite strange is I think I had it quite easy over there. I've come back home and, you know, everything's just kicking off again. You know, like dogs need to be woke, kids' breakfast need to be made, this, go, go, go. When I was over there, it was I had it quite easy, I think. So <laughs> I'm back now on the sofa bridge, bringing show number 92. I'll give you a heads up who's in. Portly comes from Samantha Henderson. Flash Fiction comes from Fabio Fernandez. We have Terry Edge. If you remember Terry Edge, back with the writer's little articles, Terry's been over to a writing workshop in America, and he's making a series of fact articles about that. So do listen out for Terry Edge's new set of articles. Looking forward to that. Main fiction comes from science fiction guru Alan Steele. We have Film Talk by Rob Barnett. And to round things off, we have new titles. That is show number 92. I also have the editorial, which I'll do straight after this little break. <laughs> So welcome to the editorial for show number 92. And like I say, we've done 92 shows on this Starship Sova's on her oral delights. We've been going about three years now. But if you pop over to Escape Pod, they've been going nearly four years. And it really, my editorial is just to take me hat off to Steve Ely. Steve Ely is the kind of, you know, he kind of kicked all this ball off with science fiction. He got his Escape Pod site up and running and has just through thick and thin has made it into a excellent show do you know what i mean so like i say all i want to do is just you know hats off and just applaud steve ely he's done a remarkable job you know like week after week you know and it is it does get pretty hard you know i mean you know i'm kind of up high but you know there is some times when it is kind of hard just to kind of make sure everything's correct you know doing the actual audio is fine but it's it's everything else, do you know? It's like putting everything together. And like I see, Steve's been doing that perfectly. And he's built it up to a massive thing. Now, if you go over and have a listen to show 200, you'll you'll hear that, you know, what they've kind of paid authors, what, you know, the, the kind of the contribution Escape Pod's done in the science fiction industry. It's just amazing. And I'm so actually, I'm proud just to be like a kind of associated with Escape Pod and Steve Ely just because I'm in the kind of same podosphere. Do you know what I mean? So I think we all should really 
you know, just take our hats off and just thank Steve Ely for doing that and, and keep on going, you know. And what was really nice about it, because I listened to Show 200, he said some like humbling words, you know, Escape Pod isn't just Steve Ely, you know, it, it's now everybody, you know, and it's the same thing with Starship's Over. It is this like, you've got this kind of core community that just kind of helps out and Steve Ely's got one going there as well. And like you say, if you can do what, you know, if I can achieve what Steve Ely's achieved, then I'm a happy guy. Do you know what I mean? So, Steve, well done. An amazing feat. And, you know, science fiction, the community, the whole community is much, much richer for your involvement, for your kind of hard work and dedication. And I know sometimes, you know what I mean, I'm there on the same side. It is sometimes a slog. But thank you so much for just doing everything you've done for the show. Well done. So let's get straight into a little bit of poetry by Samantha Henderson. It is narrated by Annette Bowman. Both artist and narrator will be on links on the front of the website. Heat by Samantha Henderson. This poem first appeared in Starline, October 2006. Heat. It is not the fashion in these days of rollerblades and liposuction to admit our hunger, even to ourselves. We avoid the mention of the mountaintops, the balmy jungles, wet and vines looping the fever trees, the slits in the rock, the feel of a weak and tepid breeze on your skin, the only difference between hot, damp underground and hot, damp overworld, and the way blood trickles thin as water here and here across the shoulders when you hit the angle right. It is not the fashion of water. Ice water is all we gorge upon, and air as cold as ice, sealed in hermetic townhouses. It is not the fashion to watch the moon rise and the stars wink into view. But tonight, I drank tepid water at the kitchen sink and saw Arcturus rise, red and bloated. I am hungry. There you go. Thank you, Samantha, and thank you, Annette. Next up is Flash Fiction, and it comes from Fabio Fernandez. And Fabio sent in through the guidelines on Starship Sova, sent in a little short story, went to the Slush Monkey Grant, and this is one of them stories. Fabio Fernandez is a writer living in San Paulo, Brazil, also a journalist and translator. He is responsible for, now get this, for the Brazilian translations of several prominent SF novels, including New Romancer, Snow Crash, and The Clockwork Orange. Wow! <laughs> Go on there, Fabio. His short stories have been published in Brazil, Portugal and Romania. He recently sold several micro-fictions to Thermatrope, Outshine and Power Burn Flash and The Nautilus Engine. He is currently writing his first novel. The story we're about to play now, The Bolton Watt Frankenstein Company, was originally published in the February 23rd issue of Everyday Weirdness online magazine. There will be a link on to his blog. He is currently one of the editors of the acclaimed review blog, Fantasy Book Critic. You can find him over at fantasybookcritic.blogspot.com. It is narrated by our good friend Julie Davis over there at Forgotten Classics. Do pop over to Julie's site, she's been so great with Starship Sova. 
so the starship's over and her oral delights is very proud to present. The Bolton Watt Frankenstein Company by Fabio Fernandez When he powered the steam robot he had just built, Victor Frankenstein felt a great relief. This time, he thought to himself, things would be different. The Bolton Watt Frankenstein Company opened its doors in November 8, 1822. The first steam-powered automaton was sold to King Frederick of Prussia, to be immediately followed by the French king and the Russian czar. It was a huge success between the royal houses of Europe. Of course, that development led to a bigger demand of automata among kingdoms elsewhere, and among lesser nobility as well. In twenty years, every noble house had at least one diener, German for servitor. The company flourished for more than two decades. When the diener joined the French workers in the episode of the Paris Commune in 1848, however, asking for égalité de droit, equality of rights, Victor wasn't around anymore, but his successor in the company sensed he shouldn't have pushed the envelope too far. Because the unfortunate French attempt at creating a new government was ill-met for the human workers, but it led to the great mechanical revolt of 1853. As Karl Marx, eyewitness of the London strike that followed suit, wrote, the plight of the workers should also be extended to any entity that is exploited for its labor force, and that, being exploited, perceives this exploitation and fights for the right to have a decent life. The definition of life, however, may vary according to the social or technological group. Being, of course, the first technological group ever in history, the mechanical brains fought for their rights. Not long after, they, for they had forced the hand of their human masters into calling a truce, and won the right to be declared sentient beings, started to call themselves machine-kind. By the end of the 19th century, machine-kind had assured its place as a group with the same rights of humans, and this, in turn, led to the second generation of the mechanical brains. Machine kind now had not only developed the ability to create other machines of the same level, but their members also demanded that they should be the only ones to give birth to their children, as claimed their self-styled leader, the old steam robot created by Victor Frankenstein almost a hundred years before. Now a metallic husk, sporting a multitude of patches welded to his body like badges of honor, the old automaton, formerly a mere advertising figurehead for Bolton Watt Frankenstein, and later co-founder of MIG, Maschinen Intelligenz Gesellschaft, fought in the European tribunals the right to be the sole producer of mechanical brains. When asked why it should have its way, W11110M, christened as William in honor of Victor's deceased little brother, but that later changed part of its name to numerical so as to reclaim a so-called mathematical legacy, answered in his peculiar mechanical fashion, Human, not equal, machine. Human, equal, human. Machine, equal, machine. Human, produces, human. Ergo, equal, 
machine produces machine. This ended up leading to the first corporate war of recorded history. It was a dirty war. Oil and blood started flowing freely in the battlefields of Europe in 1890. The Great Battle of Lyons, two years after, was carnage. The humans fought with what machines they had, all dumb ones, of course. Revolvers, repeating rifles produced by American company Winchester, and recently developed Raines and Adams grenades used in the Crimean War, and especially in the American Civil War, where electric slaves helped the Yankees to win the war for the North. But in France, humans lost, for machine kind had still other, more developed weapons under their metal sleeves. As told later by the great adventurer and corporate war historian Sir Richard Francis Burton, who, with the help of the aerial reconnaissance team led by Felix Nadar and his escadrille de ballon, infiltrated a weapons production plant in the mountains of Afghanistan and blasted it to pieces. And so it happened that the so-called machine kind had in store nothing less than mechanical flying machines. Which they intended to use on us in order to drop fragmentation bombs, thus rendering all our accounts futile. Fortunately, I was able to severely cut their efforts in that respect, saving us from terrible losses. This didn't save humankind from other losses, however, especially of a financial order. The cost of the war was great, and that led to a world of depression in 1895. By then, the world had already endured five years of a costly and terrible war. The morale of the humans was battered. The mechanical brains, alas, had no morale to speak of. But they had plans all the same—plans that were also affected by the Great Depression, for they too were dependent on money to buy their parts and to build their plants. Not that this stalled them for long. But something had changed after the destruction of the plant and the last battle, or the Battle of Lothringen in 1897. This battle resulted in a stalemate, after which the mechanical brains appeared to have completely vanished. In fact, as Liddell Hart wrote later in his book *The Machine Files*, they were working day and night, for unlike their flesh and blood counterparts, they had no need to sleep. With a very different goal on the horizon, and so it came to pass that in 1901, when humankind celebrated the beginning of a new century, machine kind left Earth in a massive iron fleet, the trails of lights from the ships being mistaken for fireworks in the night. They were never seen again. There you go. Don't forget, all copyright is Fabio's. And Julie, thank you so much. Fabio, send some more work over, sir. First one on Starship Sova. Excellent. Right next up is Terry Edge with his fascinating look at Writer's Workshop. Terry, tell us all about it. Because I've been to so many and taken quite a few, Tony asked me to do an article on workshops. Okay. It's two thirty in the morning. You've been writing solidly since ten thirty p.m. You have to submit a ten thousand word story by nine forty-five a.m. 
You'd have a beer, except there's not enough time and you can't afford to be off the ball anyway. Earlier today, yesterday now, you had seven hours of class and six exercises to finish. You managed to squeeze in an hour or two on the story, and you're up to 7,500 words, but the story has ground to a halt. You only have one direction to take it in, and you aren't at all sure it's a workable one. You pace the room. You drink black coffee. You see the clock ticking away. You just can't think of another direction. So you go to bed, set the alarm for six, hoping your subconscious will come up with a solution. But the moment you're awake in the morning, it's bad news. There is no other way. And you don't have time to start again. You're just going to have to make it work. You get up and write like the blazes. You finish at 9.40am, rush upstairs and hand in the story. You have no idea what you've written. The instruction was to just write it and get it out. A few days later, a top New York editor reads it and tells you that it's brilliant, full of great characters and very funny. Or, it's 10am. A few people are sitting around the breakfast table chatting. You feel a little hungover, but no one notices. People talk about holidays, sport, politics, favourite books. Then the tutors turn up and give the class an exercise for the day. This is to take one of the photographs they spread out on the table and write a short piece about it, around 500 words. Hand it in tomorrow. The tutors will be around, maybe, but you get the feeling they'd rather not be disturbed. Bored. You head for the computer room and spend the rest of the day working on your novel. In the evening, everyone gathers in the library and reads out a short passage that they've been asked to find in one of the books there. Apparently this is to... Actually, you've completely forgotten what the point was and have trouble staying awake while people read aloud. When one of the tutors starts to tell a story about how she found her first agent, you reach for the whiskey bottle. Well, that first scenario was me at Dean Wesley Smith's and Christine Catherine Rush's writing masterclass in Oregon towards the end of last year. The second scenario was me at a workshop that better remain nameless, but let's just say it's part of a well-known UK institution. It takes place at a pleasant spot in the country, and the format has remained unchanged for 30-odd years. What you get out of a workshop very much depends on what you want from your writing. If, for example, you're determined to become the best writer you can be, then you'll work on the principle of projecting ahead and then going to meet yourself. What do I mean? Let's take an example. You find out there's a workshop in the US for science fiction fantasy writers called Odyssey. It's a full-time six-week course, and a lot of famous writers attended it when they were unknown. It comprises daily critiquing based on the Milford method and daily input from a top editor. Some big-name writers and editors will be taking some of the sessions. You think, wow, I really need to go on that course. And you immediately project yourself ahead to it. After that, your thoughts organise themselves bit by bit to getting you there, raising the money, finding the time off work, and so on. In this, you have no option. On the other hand, you hadn't noticed that it exists. And then one day, someone mentions it to you, and your first feeling is... I'd love to, but... And your mind gets to work on the reasons why you can't go. So you look around for more manageable options, and you find a five-day course in Wales you could just fit in. OK, it'll have to be instead of a holiday, 
but you'll be meeting other writers and getting some instruction. Sounds okay, doesn't it? Well, maybe. Except that because you're not projecting ahead and working your way to meet that projection, by default you're settling for someone else's projection for you, which will be what the tutors of the course have decided, or more likely what has been decided for them by the organisation they're working for. And really you don't know what that is. It could be the tutors really want to help you improve as a writer. It could be that they're feeling insecure about their own writing and want to boost their confidence by telling others how to do it. They may just want some spare cash. They may be avoiding the improvements they need to make in their own work. You could ask them what their reasons for tutoring are, but chances are they don't really know or won't want to tell. Which means you end up on a course that's less than what you need, with no projection forward to what you want to become with no clear idea why the people who are teaching you are teaching you. Wow, sounds like school all over again. So, once more, the first consideration about workshops is what do you want, what do you need, and what are you prepared to do to get it? The second consideration is why does the course exist? What's in it for the organisers and the tutors? Remember, courses that are run regularly need to make sure they're not too unsettling for the students because they have to keep the money coming in there's nothing wrong with this intrinsically but here's the thing to be a successful writer means dealing with constant rejection interspersed with occasional success and most of the time just sheer stubborn resistance pulling you along it means staying sane in the midst of incredible contradictions rife in publishing we want only your best stories editors cry so you send them your best they reject it and instead print some utter crap just because it has a famous name attached, or because it's about gay wizards and buxom elves, and they're in at the moment. Nothing like, in other words, the quiet, pleasant, encouraging, middle-classly, polite atmosphere of those leafy retreats in the country, so favoured by UK writing courses. The third and most important consideration is, get out of any course what you need and ignore the rest. Otherwise, you'll probably have a lovely time, go for some great walks in the country, meet some really nice people, share some wonderful meals, create a network amongst the other students and feel satisfied that you've spent your time and money on... What was it? Oh, bugger, I've forgotten. If you're a projector or a header, then a good workshop is one that scares the crap out of you, basically, at least in the early part of your career. It should have you seriously worried about whether or not you're even good enough. Because let's be realistic here, if you went for a week's course in football and the trainers had implied you could be good enough to be a professional footballer, it would be tragically clear to them, to the other students and probably even to you too, that the first time you try keepy-uppy only to find the ball has jammed itself between your beer belly and your double chin, that you just haven't got what it takes. But writing's different, isn't it? It's subjective. There aren't any rules. Well, maybe, maybe not. What isn't subjective is how serious you are about improving. So what about the other students? Like-minded, aren't they? Well, I'm on several writers' forums. At one end of the scale is a forum for professional writers, many of them with big sales behind them. Basically, here, someone bangs down a piece of information to do with publishing, and the others add their views. No one talks about their personal lives, or how many pints of old fornicator they sank last night, because it just isn't relevant. At the other end of the scale is a forum which, in essence, is a chat-based excuse to avoid the task at hand. 
Personal news is greeted enthusiastically, even though the person broadcasting it has never met the people who are doing the virtual high-fives and littering the site with smiley faces. Attempts by anyone to suggest that perhaps the time might be better spent actually doing some writing is quickly neutered, battered, hung out to dry, and generally sneered at. These two approaches, and most stops in between, will appear at most workshops. It's just a fact of life. And it wouldn't matter if the lowest common denominator didn't tend to have the strongest magnetic pull. Which means, if you're aiming for the professional end, you need to develop a Right, I'm off to do some writing persona. And quit the room the second someone sighs heavily like they do on the archers when they've just come in from milking the cows, before launching into some dribble about why they just can't write today. Or to put it another way, we're all capable of far more than we believe possible. But to get there, you need drive, passion and good leadership. Now, related to workshops are manuscript or editorial agencies. These have been growing in number and size over the past few years, to an extent in parallel with the increasing number of submissions publishers and agents reject without being able or inclined to comment on. What happens basically is that you send them your manuscript and they send you back a report by one of their readers telling you what that reader thinks of it in terms of plot, characterization, writing style, etc. These reports will cost around four to nine hundred pounds plus, depending on the size of the manuscript. I've put on my blog a piece I wrote about these agencies, which goes into more detail about why I think you should be very wary of some of the practices of some of them. For example, a lot of manuscript agencies call their readers editors, when in fact, if you check their clientele, very few have done any editing at all. One leading agency, for instance, actually states on its website that it hires only the very best editors. Yet only four of its 30-plus readers have any editing experience. Oddly enough, anyone could see this for themselves if they checked the credentials of its readers posted on the site. But I guess where desperate authors are concerned, it's easy to see only what you want to see and miss the other hand that's slipping the ball under the cup. This assumption that a writer must also be an editor is similar to the assumption many courses make that a writer must also be a tutor. Yeah, if you went for brain surgery and the guy about to operate on you said he wasn't actually a brain surgeon but he'd written an episode of Casualty, I think you'd probably be ripping off the drip and legging it before the anaesthesia kicked in. Also, many agencies hire writers who have only had one or two books published, which when you consider they can charge getting on for a thousand for an editorial report is at least a little strange. In other words, don't ever assume that just because someone is taking a course or writing a report, they must be trained, skilled and proficient at it. Astonishingly, most organisations who sell writing courses give their tutors no training at all. And just because someone is a parent, we don't let them become teachers. So why we let writers become tutors, just because they've written a book or two, is a mystery to me. I once attended a one-day course where the tutor began by announcing... I am an author, and I'm going to show you what authors do. She hadn't actually written anything for a number of years, it later transpired, and the high point of the class was her handing out a photocopy of a page of one of her manuscripts. On it were a few corrections made in pen. This is what an author's manuscript looks like, she said. So now you know. At the Oregon Masterclass, a sign was present at every session. 
You are responsible for your own career. Which is a very irritating thing to be told. We'd much rather someone else was responsible for it. And anyway, isn't calling it a career dangerously close to admitting that I'm serious about what I do? Much more comforting is to be a kind of sort of writer who'd like to be successful, but well, it's out of your hands at the end of the day, isn't it? Better to sit back and listen to that nice tutor, the author, tell you how to do it. Or pay that agency a reassuringly large sum of money so they can give you expert advice that, oddly enough, will quickly turn to so much egg smoke. Here's the thing. There is fantastic, inspiring, accurate training to be got out there. All you have to do is want it enough to search it out and to not take anything less. Finally, and I'm not sure what to make of this, but I'll throw it in the pot anyway. Mostly, the writers who I've found to be the most helpful, knowledgeable and inspiring are those who sometimes get labelled commercial. Their work is often looked down upon by more literary writers, you know, the ones who write a book every ten years or so that no one really wants to read apart from, well, other literary writers and the odd critic who wants to be a literary writer. But those writers who actually write and get published a lot are the ones who tend to work the hardest. And the funny thing about hard work is that it switches on a person's perceptions and insights. For this reason, I'd strongly recommend checking out the blogs of Dean Wesley Smith and Christine Catherine Rush, where you'll find a wealth of great writing advice. Well, there's a lot more to say about this huge topic. One good thing, if you write the kind of fiction Starship Sofa broadcasts, there are a large number of options for getting writing help. Live long and write about it. Do you know what I mean? You know, this is why I kind of like little articles like this because it's given you, you know, Terry, what a great article. It's keep them coming. It's given like a glimpse into that kind of scenario. Do you know what I mean? I would probably never go to a writer's workshop, but because it's Starship Sova is this little kind of community, you know, actually getting quite big now. You know, we've got different people from different walks of life and Terry's, you know, got himself into these workshops and Terry's a damn good writer and, you know, that's just fascinating. Terry, thank you so much. Next up then is the science fiction main fiction by Alan Steele called High Roller. Alan Steele has been a full-time science fiction writer since 1988 when he sold his first short story, Life from the Mars Hotel, which is actually published in Asimov's. This story was among those included in a DVD library of science fiction that the Planetary Society placed on board NASA's Phoenix lander, which touched down on Mars in May 2008, just in time for the author's 20th anniversary in science fiction field. Well done, Alan Steele. His novels include Audible Decay, Clark Country, Space, Lunar Descent, Labyrinth of Night, The Tranquility Alternative. During the last decade, he has devoted much of his attention to the Coyote series, Coyote, Coyote Rising, Coyote Frontier, and Coyote Horizon, and the forthcoming Coyote Destiny. His official website www.alansteel.com and the Coyote fan site coyoteseries.com Steel has published over 75 stories principally in Asimov's Analog Fantasy and Science Fiction and Omi as well as dozens of anthologies and small press publications He has received the two Hugo Awards both for Best Novella 
two Lucas Awards for Best First Novel and Best Novella, four Asimov Readers Awards. Alan Steele serves on the Board of Advisors for the Space Frontier Foundation and is a former member of both the Board of Directors and the Board of Advisors of Science Fiction Writers of America. The story is narrated by none other than our slush monkey, Grant Stone, over there in New Zealand. Grant, thank you for this. This has been in my collection for a while now, but it's finally aired itself. So, Grant, thank you so much. I'll put a link on the Grant site and Alan Steele's. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present. High Roller by Alan Steele We came into Nueva Vegas through the service entrance on the crater's north side. Our hiding place was a pressurised cell inside a water tank, carried by a cargo hauler. We played possum while the vehicle came to a stop and casino security scanned the tank. The water surrounding us blocked the neutrino sweep and our skin suits stealthed everything else. The tractor began moving again. We felt it enter the vehicle airlock, then it stopped once more and there was another long wait while the airlock pressurised and electromagnetic scrubbers whisked away the dusty regolith. We rolled forward again. Another minute passed, and then we came to a halt and I heard Jojo's voice through my headset. Clear. About time. I'd been flat on my back during the 40-kilometre ride down the Apollo Highway from Port Armstrong, and my arms were beginning to cramp from holding the equipment bag against my chest. I reached up, found the hatch lock wheel, twisted it clockwise and pushed it open, then sat up and squirmed up through the half-metre manhole. Jen was right behind me. I crouched on top of the hauler and took her bag from her, then helped her out of the tank. As we'd expected, we were in the garage beneath the crater. Rovers, buses and various maintenance vehicles were parked all around us. No one in sight. The day shift workers had long since clocked off, and the night shift guys had already clocked in. Jojo was the only guy around, and he didn't count. In fact, Jojo wouldn't count for much of anything until I reactivated him. Once Jen and I pulled our masks out of our bags and put them on, I climbed up to the hauler's cab, turned a valve to bleed off the air, and unsealed the hatch. He sat behind the yoke, two metres of ceramic polymer, dumb as a moon rock. Had to be that way. If he'd retained his programming during the ride to the casino, it might have been downloaded at the security checkpoint and searched by the local DNAI. So his memory had been scrubbed before we left Port Armstrong, leaving behind only a well-buried instruction to transmit the all-clear once the hauler had arrived and his peripheral sensors didn't register any body heat signatures. He'd driven us here without even knowing it. The next order of business, bringing Jojo back into the game. I opened my bag, pulled out my pad and linked it to the serial port on his chest, a double beep from my pad reciprocated by another double beep from his chest. Lights flashed on his cylindrical head, and then his limbs made a spasmodic jerk. Reload complete. All systems operational. Then his head snapped toward me. Nice to see you again, Sammy. You're looking particularly reptilian today. Good. He recognized me even though I was now wearing my disguise. Welcome back, Jojo, I said, and then stepped aside so he could see Jen. You know our partner, of course. Yo, Jen! How's it going, girl? Found any good cow pies lately? She wasn't amused. Say it again, Tinhead, she murmured, and I'll download you into a vacuum cleaner. Everyone relax. 
Jojo was just being funny, sure, but I'd like to find the guy who invented personality subroutines for AIs. We've got a job to do. Jojo, can you modem the casino comp? Let me work on it. A moment passed. Yet, too many lockouts. I'll need direct interface. I was expecting that. No problem. We'll try again once we find a comp. I jumped down off the tractor. Jojo followed me, his slender limbs whirring softly as he unfolded himself from the cab. I locked the cab, then turned to him. Give me an eyes up of the layout, basement only. Pinpoint our location. You got it, chief. An instant later, a hollow of Nueva Vegas's subsurface levels appeared upon the lenses of my mask. Our whereabouts were marked as three luminous points at the outer circle of a concentric maze of corridors, tunnels, rooms, and shafts. Nueva Vegas's quantum comp lay within a sealed vault at the centre of this maze, protected by umpteen levels of defence, both electronic and physical. Ever heard of Fort Knox, the place in Kentucky where the old USA once kept its gold supply, back when gold was actually worth something? The DNAI had that degree of protection and then some. Impossible to penetrate, or so I'd been told. But then again, that wasn't our problem. We were after bigger game. I located the nearest service lift that went directly to the crater floor. It was only a few metres away, down a short corridor. Everyone ready? Got your stuff? Jen nodded within her mask. Jojo blinked some diodes my way. Okay then, I said, and picked up my bag. Let's roll. Nueva Vegas is built within Collins Crater, about 30 kilometres from the Apollo 11 historical site. A tour bus will take you out there, and also to the Surveyor 5 landing site just a few clicks away, and the Mare Tranquilitatis battlefield memorial a few hundred clicks north near Arago Crater. Most visitors don't do that, though. Nueva Vegas wasn't the first lunar casino resort, but most guidebooks consider it to be the best. The table stakes are good, and the payout is excellent. Even if you don't gamble, there's vices you won't easily find back on Earth. Not too many places where you can legally purchase a 250-gram bag of Moondog Gold, or hire a double-jointed Google, pardon me, a superior, to be your companion for the evening. But it's still a place for the rich. A cheap room near the crater floor costs 300 locks per soul. For this, you get a bed, a passcard for the shower stall down the corridor, five complimentary chips, and a discount coupon for the all-you-can-eat buffet. A two-room suite complete with its own personal bath, private balcony, mini-bar, and free continental breakfast, will set you back a cool million for a two-week stay. High rollers rate the best accommodations, of course. Spacious apartments on the upper levels of the crater rim, with outside windows, catered dining, personal masseurs, an unlimited line of credit, and all the liquor, dope, and sex you can take. If you have to ask how much that costs, then you have no business being there. We were checking in on the budget plan. No room, no bath, no food. We weren't planning to stay very long, though. Just a few minutes on the casino floor, and we'd be on our way. The lift doors opened, and we stepped out into a white moon-crete corridor, with low ceilings and fluorescent lighting. A bot carrying a platter of hors d'oeuvres squealed in protest as it swerved to avoid colliding with us. From the other side of a pair of swinging doors, I caught the aroma of cooked food. We'd found the entrance to one of the service kitchens. I noted the direction in which the bot was headed, and turned to follow it. Hey, what are you guys doing here? 
A short, rotund gentleman in a waiter's tux and powdered wig emerged from a doorway, a magnum of champagne wrapped in a towel in his white-gloved hands. A wine steward, clearly irritated by our presence. We've told you people a thousand times, he snapped as he bustled up to us. Entertainers eat in the employees' cafeteria, just like everyone else. He'd mistaken us for one of the lounge acts. No wonder. I wore a lizard head mask, and Jen looked like a giant housefly. They didn't just conceal our faces. The masks also contained eyes-up displays, voice filters, and short-range comm gear. We looked weird, sure. But in Nueva Vegas, weirdness is the normal order of things. We fit right in. A thousand pardons, sir, I said. We just got confused, thought this was... Is that the wine cellar? Jen interrupted, her voice an insectile buzz behind her mask. May we see it, please? The waiter regarded her, as if she had just emerged from a bowl of potage Rossini. You most certainly may not, he huffed, not noticing that her right hand was within her bag. Now, if you'll please... Oh, but I insist. Jen's hand came out of the bag. Clasped within it was a Pax Astra Royal Navy taser pistol. He barely got a chance to see what it was, before Jen jammed it against his throat. I'd love to see your collection. Right this way, madam. The wine steward managed to keep from dropping the bottle of 77 Sinai Planum as he hastily tapped his password into the keypad, then backed through the door. The wine cellar was a small, cool room, dimly lit with hundreds of bottles of expensive wines resting upon faux oak racks. The waiter sat down in the corner next to the imported Bordeaux, clasped his hands together atop his wig, and wisely remained quiet while Jen and I pulled out our guns. Two Pan particle beam rifles, complete with laser sights, and attached smoke and pepper gas grenades to our belts. Jojo went to the wall comp. Opening a chest port, he pulled out a cable, and hardwired himself to it, then went silent for a couple of minutes, while lines of type flashed across the comp screen so fast that I couldn't keep up with them. We're in, he said at last, his head swivelling toward me. Ready to initiate final sequence. Got it right here, big guy. I reached into a chest pocket, found the diskette I'd been given. Another failsafe. If we'd been caught while passing through security, the first thing I would have done was push the auto-erase tab. Jojo pushed the diskette into the terminal, and I reached past him to tap an eight-digit code into the miniature keyboard. A green border appeared around the screen. Locked and loaded. I pulled out the diskette snapped it between my hands and tossed it into the corner next to the cowering wine steward. Thank you, Garçon. You've been very helpful. Mind if we take this? Jen was examining a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon she'd taken from the wine rack. Or would you recommend the Biennoles instead? The... the the Cabernet is quite... quite good, madam. He was barely able to look up at her. I don't... I don't think you'll be disappointed. Hmm, well, if you insist. Jen gently placed the bottle in her bag, then slung it across her shoulders. I hoped it wouldn't weigh her down too much. Ready when you are. Okie dokie. Jojo detached his cable, let it reel itself back into his chest. I'm going to huff, and I'm going to puff, and I'm going to... Save it for the civilians. I raised my rifle to the terminal. One quick squeeze of the trigger, and the panel was fried out. I turned around and aimed my gun at the wine steward. Okay, 
Here's the deal. You get to live so long as you sit here quietly for the next few minutes and don't make a peep. But if I see you, hear you, even smell you... Don't worry about me. His wig had become dislodged. His close-cropped hair was slick with sweat. I... I'll, I'll just sit here. Good man. Again, we thank you. He nodded, happy to be rid of us. Then it seemed as if he'd mustered a gram of courage. You know, of course, where you are. Sure. Nueva Vegas. Well, yes, of course, certainly, but... His voice dropped. This is... This is Mr. Chicago's casino. This place, I mean, it belongs to him. I raised an eyebrow, before I remembered that he couldn't see my expression behind my mask. Yes, and? Mm, nothing. He stared at me for a moment in bewilderment. Then the corners of his mouth twitched upward, as if he was enjoying a private joke at our expense. Nothing at all. Enjoy your visit. Thank you. We will. I looked at the others. All right, let's go. The corridor was vacant. I waited until Jen and Jojo had come out. Then I closed the wine cellar door behind us. I could have scrambled the keypad, but the wine steward hadn't given us any trouble. He deserved a chance to live. I left the door unlocked. Our guns beneath our arms, we marched down the corridor, heading for a pair of double doors at the end. The doors slid apart with barely a sound. Light and noise rushed in. The easy part was done. Now it was time for the tough stuff. We came out into an open-air restaurant, made to look like a Mediterranean cafe. Plaster walls, watercolours of French street scenes, garden trellises cluttered with grapevine, tables covered with checkerboard cloths placed upon a red brick terrace. Only a few diners noticed us as we quickly strode past them, and those who did were baffled for only a moment before knowing smiles crept across their faces. We had to be actors on our way to a floor show somewhere in the casino. The guns? Obviously fakes. Even the waiters didn't look at us twice. We exited the cafe without bringing any undue attention to ourselves. And now we were within the casino. The floor of Collins Crater was nearly two kilometres in diameter, and the casino took up nearly every square metre of it. Thousands of slot machines binged and booped and clinked and clanged in a steady and omnipresent cacophony while the hollows that flickered above them, semi-nude women doing striptease, classic cartoon characters chasing each other with chainsaws, starships engaged in battle, were ignored by scores of middle-aged men and women, hunched in front of the machines, slipping tokens into the slots, pushing buttons and yanking chrome handles, watching in single-minded fascination as apples and grapes and lemons scrolled past their sleepless eyes. Gamblers gathered around blackjack and poker tables watched as dealers slapped cards down on the green felt collecting chips with smiles, surrendering them with muttered curses. Waitresses in skin-tight outfits and high-heeled shoes circulated between the baccarat and roulette tables, delivering drinks and joints to players as they studied cards and tossed dice, collecting tips from winners and favouring those who'd just crapped out with disingenuous expressions of sympathy. Here and there, within small, sunken amphitheatres, comedians went through their routines, magicians performed sleight-of-hand tricks, applause greeted Frank, Dean and Sammy as they took to the stage for another sold-out show. Hookers and tricks negotiated with one another. Card sharps tried out their systems for beating the odds. Drunks bemoaned their bad luck and a few hundred dumbasses parted with their money and loved every minute of it, while smoke and sweat and liquor fumes rose to the opaque sky of the pressure dome far above, obscuring the security flycams that prowled above the gaming areas. 
their lenses watchful for any unusual activity. We qualified. Even in the middle of all this, it was hard to miss Lizard Boy, Fly Girl, and Jojo the Robot as they made their way across the gaming area, rifles slung beneath their shoulders. By the time we reached the raised island, near the centre of the casino, three flycams were on us, and a couple of plainclothes security guys moving into position. No alarms, or at least not yet. Everyone was still trying to figure out who we were and what we were doing. I ignored the heat as I approached casino control. A bouncer in a white tux moved to block my way. May I help you, sir? He asked, raising a hand to stop me. Yes, you can, I replied, and then I casually laid my gloved left hand against his wrist. A ten thousand volt charge dropped him. He'd barely hit the floor when Jen turned her taser upon the plainclothes guys. Four shots and they went down. Jojo, I said. Kill the flyers. You got it, chief. A double beep from his chest and every flycam in the casino fell from the air. They crashed into poker tables and slot machines, plummeted into cafes, smashed into pieces next to the rat pack. Throughout the casino we could hear people screaming. As attention getters go, this one rated a solid ten, and we hadn't even started yet. A superior was on duty as floor boss. His long-fingered hands were already darting across the wraparound console as I dashed up the stairs into the platform. Get away from that, I said pointing my rifle at him. The floor boss obediently moved away, the angel wings tattooed across his face flexing slightly as his overlarge eyes stared at me in astonishment. Behind him, a red light flashed on a panel. What button did you push? I asked. Locked down we are. All exits blocked. Access to the caches denied. He smiled at me. Surrender now, if you're smart. Otherwise assured, your death shall be. Something else I'd expected. Jojo, the Googles hit the panic button, I murmured, speaking into my throat mic. Do something about it, okay? I'm on it. A brief pause. They're on to us, Chief. Looking around, I saw what he meant. All of the slot machines had gone silent. Chrome shutters had automatically rolled down across the windows of the cashier booths. Even the service bots had become motionless. Patrons milled about in confusion, still unaware of what was happening in their midst. Yet from my vantage point on the platform, I could see the recessed floor panels irising open all around us. Jen, cover us, I snapped. Jojo, link up with the security system. Elevators ascended from beneath the casino floor, each one bearing a combot. Big mothers too, two and a half metres tall, heavily armoured with guns built into their forearms and 360-degree vision in their spade-shaped heads. Tourists shrieked and ran for cover, dropping tokens and chips as they made way for the behemoths stamping through the aisles. Nasty toys. Mr. Chicago had spared no expense making his customers feel safe. Jen's multifaceted eyes turned toward me. This could be a problem. Bad idea, was it not? The floor boss calmly watched as the bots advanced towards us, his right hand hovering above the console. Give up and live, you still may? Think not, I do. I looked down at Jojo. Got it? Twenty-eight seconds ago. Jojo didn't budge. Do you want me to? Yes, please, by all means. Damn literal-minded machine. A moment later the bots froze in place. I heard a brief buzz from the nearest one just before it went inert. I looked around at the floor boss, just in time to see his mouth drop open. You were saying? 
How did, how could you have... I always knew superiors could speak plain English when they wanted to. That's my secret, I said. Then I reached into my hip pocket and pulled out my pad. Okay, now that you're all out of tricks, show me how to link up with cash control. Still not convinced I meant business, he stared at me. I planted my rifle barrel against his chest. Look, I can do this without your help. You saw what I did to the bots. The only difference is it'll make my job a little easier, and you'll get to breathe through your mouth, instead of through a chest wound. So what do you say? He was about to reply when I heard a sudden fizz from behind me. Looking around, I saw Jen holding her rifle in firing position. Not far away, a small mob of people was backing away from a slot machine she'd just killed. Too many heroes in this place, Sammy, she said quietly, for my ears only. We need to get a move on. Then she gazed back at the mob. Anyone else want to try it? She said loudly. They stayed where they were. We didn't want to kill anyone, but it was only a matter of time before she wouldn't be able to control the crowd any longer. I looked back at the floor boss. His expression told me he'd finally realised how serious we were. Ready to play along? Certainly. Taking a keycard from his pocket, he unlocked a panel on the console, swung it open to reveal a serial port. Here it is. All you have to do is... I know. I attached my pad to the port, tapped in a code I'd memorised. Nueva Vegas held very little in the way of hard currency. Most of its transactions were electronic, in the form of funds transferred from the bank accounts of its visitors, which in turn became Pax Astra Locks, payable as tokens and chips from the cashier booths. A secure system, so long as you didn't have direct access to casino control, and knowledge of the code numbers that would allow you to tap into the funds stored within the central DNAI. Which I did. Within seconds, 680.75 megalots was transferred into my pad. I detached the pad, tossed it down to Jojo. Upload this, please, I said. Roger, Dodger! Jojo reattached the pad to his chest. In another moment, he transmitted the money to our friends in orbit. All done, Chief. Thank you. I turned to the floor boss once more. Your cooperation has been appreciated, monsieur. One last piece of business and we'll be on our way. Get away with this, surely you don't expect... He must have begun to feel safe again, because he'd returned to his lopsided manner of speech. Owned by Mr. Chicago, Nueva Vegas. An individual lacking in forgiveness, but not in resources. So I've heard. But we have a few of our own. I looked away from him. Jojo, will you come up here, please? Is it my turn? Oh, joy! Jojo clanked up the steps, coming to a halt between us. Thank you, thank you, he said, raising his spindly arms and revolving his head to address everyone. It's certainly been an honor to be here tonight. I'd like to thank my producer, my director, my publicist, my screenwriter, and all the little people who've done so much over the years to... Thanks, Jojo. You can shut up now. He obediently fell silent. I tapped a button on his chest. A panel slid open, and I entered a four-digit string into his CPU. The tiny LCD above it flashed to fifteen minutes, then began to count back. I motioned the floor boss closer, then pointed to the display. See that? What do you think that is? He peered at it. A timer? That's correct. With a fifteen-minute countdown that's already started. I walked behind Jojo, opened another panel to reveal a litre-sized cylinder within his back. 
And this, my friend, is a nuke. Technically speaking, the nuke wasn't a bomb, but rather a 10 kiloton nuclear device of the sort that asteroid miners use to excavate large, C-type rocks. Jojo's body had literally been built around it, so it was well shielded from the security scanners. The bystanders close enough to overhear this shrank back. Murmurs swept through the crowd. Most people froze, but a few turned and bolted down the aisles. The floor boss stared at me in horror. You're bluffing, he said quietly. I looked him straight in the eye. No, I'm not, I said, with utter sincerity. In fifteen minutes. Fourteen minutes, twenty-nine seconds, Jojo corrected. Whoops, better make that fourteen seconds, twenty-seven seconds. Oh dear, now it's fourteen minutes, twenty-five. Fourteen minutes and whatever. Thanks, Jojo, I'll take it from here. I shut the panel. Anyway, you get the picture. You've got just that much time to evacuate the crater and get everyone to safe distance before... I'm going to huff, and I'm going to puff, and I'm going to blow your house down! Jojo had been saving that line all night. It wasn't part of his programming, but then again, neither was self-preservation. Thanks, Jojo. You said it better than I could have. I handed Jojo my rifle. And in case you're wondering, he's had all his Asimov protocols scrubbed from memory, so it wouldn't be wise to try and disarm him. I turned to the bot. You know what to do now, right? Jojo hefted the rifle. And he use punks gets any wise ideas? You gets a belly full of lasers, see? I'm a desperate bot, see? It was a lousy Cagney impersonation, but it got the point across. The superior was already backing away. So if I were you, I continued. The floor boss was no longer listening. Bolting to the nearest console, his hands raced across various buttons as he jabbered orders in superior patois. Within moments, red emergency beacons began to strobe throughout the casino as sirens started to wail. A Code 5 blowout alarm, activated only when catastrophic loss of dome integrity was imminent. One thing to be said for Nueva Vegas, the management made sure that the tourists were repetitively instructed about what to do, in case of a worst-case scenario. Those constant reminders on the room screens, in the elevators and restaurants and bars, even on the slot machines and above the game tables, got the point across, to even the densest and most complacent of its patrons. All around us, everyone who hadn't fled already, were running for their lives, running for the clearly marked emergency exits ringed around the crater floor. Within minutes, the first few escape pods would be automatically launched from their ports within the outer crater rim. I saw a few diehards scrambling to gather their chips, but even they knew that it was time to run. The floor boss had already leaped over the consoles. He joined the stampede, getting out while the getting was good. Minus ten minutes, thirty seconds and counting. Jojo was no longer clowning around. Um, Sammy, you're not going to... Easy, pal. I got you covered. I pulled out my pad, rinsed its memory, and then slapped it against his chest. A few seconds passed, then a light flashed on its panel. Jojo's higher functions had been downloaded into the pad leaving behind only the basic routines necessary for the bot to continue its primary mission. Bye-bye, I said to the mindless automaton. Its head swiveled in my direction, but I wasn't a threat, and so it ignored me. I jumped off the platform and landed next to Jen. You could have just left him behind. She was already headed for the restaurant where we'd come in. Jojo's good. I'd like to work with him again. No point in wasting a good AI for no reason.
The casino floor was nearly empty. Nothing stood between us and our escape route. Clock's ticking, I said, slapping her behind. Beat it, sugar mouth. After you, lizard lips. The getaway was easy. Jen and I went back the way we came, through the service kitchen. By now, the whole place was deserted, save for a few bots, still carrying orders out to customers who had split without waiting for the check. All the same, I glanced inside the wine cellar to make sure the wine steward was no longer around. He was wise. He was gone. So we headed for the basement, skipping the slow-moving elevator and using the stairs instead. The cargo hauler was right where we'd left it. All the other vehicles had been taken, but no one had managed to break into our vehicle. Cab pressurization took 90 seconds. That was the only period in which I was truly scared. Watching the atmosphere meter rise while the countdown ticked back at the same rate. And once it was done, I put the hauler in reverse and put the pedal to the floor. No time to wait for the vehicle airlock to cycle through. I rammed the doors with the hauler's back end and let explosive decompression do the rest. Jen swore at me as she was thrown back against her shoulder straps but I paid little attention to her as I locked the brakes and twisted the yoke hard to the right, pulling a bootlegger turn on the ramp. Then I floored it again, and off we went, up the ramp and out into the cold blue earthlight. I glanced at side-view mirror, giving Nueva Vegas one last look as the hauler raced across mere tranquillitatis, its steel-mesh tyres throwing up fantails of moon dust. Light still gleamed through the crater windows, yet escape pods were rising from the outer wall, tiny ellipsoids heading for orbit. By now, the casino should be empty. Fifteen minutes is a long time when you're running for your life. The lunar freighter was right where it was supposed to be, two clicks due east of Collins Crater. Its cargo ramp was lowered. I drove the hauler up it as fast as I dared, then slammed the brakes once we were inside the hold. The pilot wasn't taking any chances. He jettisoned the ramp, then shut the hatch and fired the main engines. Jen and I were still in the hauler when the countdown reached zero, so we didn't get to see the nuke go off. I'm told it was beautiful. A miniature protostar, erupting within a lunar crater, rising upward as a hemispherical shell of thermonuclear fire. All we experienced, though, was a faint tremor that passed through the lander's hull as it raced ahead of the shockwave, heading for the stars. After a while, the pilot repressurized the cargo bay. I unsealed the cab and we climbed out, carefully making our way through zero-g until we reached the open interior hatch. The crewman waiting on the other side cracked up when we came through, and it was only then that I realised we were still wearing our masks. I tore mine off, took a deep breath, and grinned at the silly lizard face I'd worn for the last hour or so. Jen shook out her hair, scowled briefly at her fly head, then pitched it aside and let me give her a quick kiss. I'd just made my way up to the command deck, with the intent of downloading Jojo into the nearest reliable comp I could find, when the pilot informed me that he had an incoming transmission. Mr. Chicago wanted to talk to me. I glanced at Jen. She was in the passageway behind us, floating upside down as she peeled out of her sweaty skin suit. We gave each other a look, and then I told the pilot I'd take it in the wardroom. He nodded, and I squeezed past Jen to the closet-sized compartment just after the cockpit. Mr. Chicago was waiting for me there, a doll-sized hologram hovering an inch above the mess table. He was seated in lotus position, naked from the waist up, his dead white skin catching some indirect source of light behind him. His pink eyes studied me as I moved within range of the ceiling holocams. I understand you destroyed my casino today, he said. Yes, I did, I replied. 
Rumor had it that Mr. Chicago made his base of operations somewhere out in the belt, within an asteroid he'd transformed into his own private colony. If that was so, then he couldn't be there now, because he nodded with barely a half-second delay. And I also understand that you managed to steal... He brushed his shoulder-length hair aside as he turned his head slightly, as if listening to someone off-screen. Six hundred and eighty megalocks from my casino before you detonated a nuclear device within it. Six hundred eighty million seven hundred fifty thousand. I shrugged. I haven't checked the exact figures, so there may be some loose change. Yes, I did. Well done, sir. Well done. Thank you. We aim to please. To this day, I still don't know exactly why Mr. Chicago hired us, to rob his own casino and then blow it up. Perhaps it had become a liability. Nueva Vegas was an expensive operation, after all. It may have cost more to keep it going than it brought in, and once its bottom line slipped from the black into the red, he may have decided to torch the place once he'd made sure that he'd recovered every locks he could. He'd gone so far as to supply all the information we needed. Jojo's nuke, schematics of the Nueva Vegas sublevels and gaming areas, the codes to disable the security bots and provide direct access to the DNAI, and even furnish a means of escape. Yet even a gangster has to answer to legitimate underwriters, insurance companies, banks, investors, the Pax Astra itself. So what better way to cover himself than have his property nuked during a heist? If his scheme was successful, he could always claim someone else did it, and if it failed, well, I doubt our conversation would have been so pleasant, if it happened at all. But that's just my theory, not for me to ask the reasons why. No lives lost, or so I've heard. His right hand briefly disappeared beyond camera range. When it returned, it held a glass of wine. Quite professional. I'm satisfied, to say the least. Add, oh, shall we say another 1% to your take? Is that good for you? We'd agreed to do the job for 5% of whatever we managed to grab. A bonus was unnecessary, but welcome nonetheless. I felt a tap on my shoulder. Looking around, I saw Jen, hovering. She smiled and nodded. Thank you, I said. Yes, that's quite acceptable. Jen kissed my ear. I gently pushed her away. Well then, I believe our business is concluded, Mr. Chicago said. If I ever need your services again, you know where to find us. Very good. Thank you. Goodbye. A final wave, and then his image faded out. I let out my breath, turned around to find Jen behind me. Want to know what 6% of 680 megalocks is? She asked. Um, let's see. That would be... I shrugged. You do the math. I'm busy right now. She grinned, moved closer to me. I reached out, shut the compartment hatch. Until the freighter reached the nearest Lagrange station, we had a long ride ahead of us. And we still hadn't opened the bottle of wine she'd stolen. There you go, don't forget all copyright. As you know, is Mr. Alan Steele's don't go out there, copy, copy, selly, selly. You'll have me to deal with. <laughs> so next up, film talk by Rod Barnett. Rod. Thank you. Come on, bring on this. Uh, what films you been watching? Hello, everybody. It's summer movie season again. Yes, the weather is hot, and it's time to find a cool movie theater, dive inside, and look for some escapism. Yes, 
summer movie season. This is when Hollywood rolls out its most spectacular, or at least the most spectacle-filled films of the entire year. This is when they work hard to separate your hard-earned cash from you to watch things go boom. This is a good thing, in my opinion. I like these kind of movies. They're the kind of movies that you can turn your brain off and enjoy, or leave your brain on and watch as well. They're, they're fun. It's, it's a good thing. It makes me happy. I look forward to the summer movie season every year. I hope for good things. I hope for Hellboy 2. I hope for The Dark Knight. I mean, a good summer movie season is a blessing and a wonderful, wonderful thing to look back on and smile about. I mean, remember last year? Dark Knight, Iron Man. Oh, it was a good year last year, people. Even the films that didn't do that well financially still were pretty darn good. But uh, we're not talking about last year. This is 2009. And the summer movie season is not shaping up to be that great. As a matter of fact, it's turning out to be a pretty bad summer movie season. Of the three big potential blockbusters Hollywood's rolled out so far, only one of them has been actually fun at all. And even it was kind of a stinking mess, to be honest with you. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's, let's take these things one at a time, and we'll talk about the problems with them as we go. First one out of the gate was that stalwart part of the Hollywood summer movie season for years now, at least for about the past 10 years, the superhero movie. Now, I love superhero movies. I'm a comic book fan, grew up reading them, love superhero movies. The best superhero movies are what comic book movies should have been all along, and so rarely are. I mean, Spider-Man, Spider-Man 2, let's not talk about Spider-Man 3 because it makes me want to cry. But anyway, first superhero movie of the summer was uh, Wolverine, or to give it its full Hollywood stupid title, X-Men Origins Wolverine, which sounds so much like a product that you don't even want to get into it. But I won't bother with the full title here anymore. Here we have a movie that had potential but squanders it completely. The film starts off being very interesting, with a pre-credit sequence showing us the boyhood trauma that would define Wolverine over his entire life. It takes place in the mid-1850s, and in Canada, I'm pretty sure the film doesn't get too specific. This does a good job of setting up the sibling rivalry, the relationship between Logan slash Wolverine and his brother, Sabretooth. Then, the excellent credit sequence takes the two of them through every major war from the American Civil War to Vietnam, brilliantly showing us that they are gifted with either eternal life or just very long ones because of their mutant healing abilities. Now, in this first section of the film, we also see the traumatic, horrible thing that is going to really define Wolverine as a character throughout his entire life. It's very well done, and it's very well played by a couple of pretty talented child actors. Then, in the credit sequence, as we go through the wars, we get to our two main actors, and things just keep going. It's well done. This is effective. Now, once we're in the Vietnam War section, things are getting a little more out of hand for the two, uh, the two men, 
And uh, after an attempted military execution for killing a superior officer doesn't quite work out as the uh, executioners think it ought to, i.e., they shoot the two of them and they don't die, they are recruited into a special government group of mutants run by Sergeant Stryker. Time goes by, and Logan finally rebels against Stryker's group and leaves it because of Stryker's nasty methods when dealing with civilians. After this point, the film goes downhill fast, and it never recovers. The last half is a muddled mess of tricks and hidden agendas that gets very silly and ultimately really pointless. But the movie's worst failure is that it has far too many characters. For a movie that's supposed to tell the story of Wolverine, there is way too much time spent showing us other mutants, all to very little effect. When I realized that Gambit had no real function in the story at all, it became clear that 20th Century Fox or some high-up executive someplace must have mandated the inclusion of as many action-figure-ready characters as possible. And it's a damn shame. A crappy script can't be saved by the strong performances from Hugh Jackman and Liev Schreiber, who plays Sabretooth. Their efforts are fantastic. They do really good jobs selling what is really some pretty weak dialogue at times. They're fun to watch. Very enjoyable. But this film ends up being a true, sad waste of time. A missed opportunity and a real disaster. Next up was a film that I actually liked. Even though, in all honesty, it's... Well, I'll get to that in a minute. I'm talking about Star Trek. Now, a lot has been written about how fun and good this film is. And I agree. Up to a point. J.J. Abrams has done a really good job with this thing. He's done what might have been considered not too long ago to be almost impossible. This film is a smart reboot, or relaunch, or whatever you want to call it, of the classic characters, and it moves like a speeding bullet. But, and this is a big but, people, it's also, unfortunately, pretty dumb. I mean, it has the feel of having been put into production before the screenplay was really finished. It's sloppy. There are giant plot holes, stupid contrivances, and just dumb moments that should never have been filmed. There are some things in here that really made me roll my eyes, and I mean some bone-stupid stuff. Did we really need to see Scotty beam into those water pipes and get shot around like a pinball? I mean, come on. Was there anybody in the theater past the age of about 15 who thought that that was anything other than stupid? But but still, I enjoyed the movie. It has a real energy, and it has that positive vibe that the old TV series from the 60s used to have in spades. It really feels good. It feels fun. It's what Star Trek really should always be. Entertaining as hell. The cast is uniformly great with Bruce Greenwood as uh, Captain Pike and Carl Urban doing a dead-on DeForest Kelly playing Bones, being the real standouts for me. They were fantastic. It's the best Star Trek film since The Undiscovered Country, leaving me feeling pretty happy to have seen it. 
warts and all. Let's hope that the next one has a much better script that doesn't have such a wasted part for the bad guy. Seriously, people. If you're going to hire Eric Bana, give him something to do. Oh, and uh, try shooting the action scene so that we can understand what the hell's happening. That bar fight was incomprehensible. Next up, one of my absolute favorite forms of science fiction entertainment is dystopian science fiction tales. You put a dystopian story in front of me, on the page, on the screen, I don't care. And man, I'm telling you right now, I am going to be entertained one way or the other. You've got to work pretty hard to make a dystopian story so boring, so dull, so unentertaining that I will turn against it. I'm serious, man. I love these things. When I found out they were making another Terminator movie, I... Okay, well, actually, I was kind of worried. Because the first three films. um, First two movies, James Cameron. Great stuff. Love them. Good movies. Excellent action movies, as well as being great dystopian science. We love it. Good stuff. The third one, even though it's not as good as the first two, it has its own problems. I really enjoyed it as well. So I was looking forward to this with a little trepidation. It seemed like the curve had started downward, and I wasn't really sure if this was a good idea... But hey, I went to see it anyway because, man, the trailers looked good. Did you see the giant mechanical... It looked really... (sighs) You know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, right here on this podcast, our friend Tony gave his own two cents worth about this film. And, you know, I just had to nod my head along with him because, damn, what a mess Terminator Salvation is. This thing has got to have the worst script I've seen in a long time. Remember remember the original two Terminator movies, how they sucked you in and made you care about the people on screen? And Remember how tense the action scenes were? And remember how much you cared about how the story ended each time? This film marks a departure from those movies because you won't give a tinker's damn about anything that happens from beginning to end. Sitting in the movie theater at about the 45-minute mark, I turned to the friend I was watching the film with and said, you know, I could leave right now and never care what happens next. His reply was to just look at me and go, yeah, me too. But hey, I had paid my money, so I stuck it out. I could have gotten more excitement from a nap. There is almost no plot to this movie. Hell, there's barely any story. It can be summed up like this. Guy gets turned into Terminator. Stuff blows up. Guy dies. There is only one section of Terminator Salvation that actually has a pulse. When it actually even comes to life. And that's because they pull Arnold Schwarzenegger, or his virtual image, out of a hat and just throw it at you. Now, don't get me wrong. That was interesting. The rest of it was basically playing spot-the-scene-or-image stolen from another film in an attempt to hide the threadbare nature of this crap. It is the worst thing I can call an action film. Terminator Salvation is boring. Boring. I was willing to cut director McGee some slack despite his poor past work, but now, honestly, he just needs to go back to music videos. 
He is not a storyteller, and he needs to learn one way or another that explosions do not make a good movie. Not the best beginning to a movie season, especially not a summer movie season. You expect better. You expect something spectacular. You expect to have that film that comes down the pike that makes you start screaming to your friends, you got to go see this. Well, that film has come along, but I'm not going to talk about it today. I'm going to let you off with a warning now to not go see these films. Or, well, go see Star Trek, I guess. Especially if you're a Star Trek fan. But, man, it's bone stupid. I just, i got to stop thinking about it. It just irritates the heck out of me. But there are better movies. And they've come out this summer. And I'll tell you what, I'll talk to you about them next time. This is Rod, and I will, uh, I'll talk to everybody later on. Hope you have better luck at the cinema than me this summer, folks. There you go. Thank you very much, Rod. Get that next one in. I see it's not in me collection yet. <laughs> right. Last up. New titles. There has been new titles after new titles popping through my door. But because I've been at my mum's for a couple of weeks, things are getting a little bit you know, back in the back catalogue. So I have got... One, two, three, four, five, six new titles. Two of them is the August edition 2009 of Asimov's that came through while I was away. Christine Catherine Rush is in there. Robert Reed is in there. Damien Broderick, Mary Robinette Cowell, and Stephen Pokes. Analog magazine came through my door. This is the September 2009 edition. Got Barry B. Longyear and Richard A. Lovett in there. First up is, on the, kind of the book front, is the paperback version of, or a new version of, Charles Strauss's Saturn's Children. Now this is up for Hugo Award, and it's by publishers Orbit, priced at $7.99. Nice cover on the front, it's got some sort of seafaring spaceship, but it's more, it, you know, it, probably a few thousand feet in the air, like a sailing ship, but without the sails, you know, it, it's like in a very steampunky gothic looking in a nice kind of golden atmosphere bbc focus says smartly written fun the times says a smart and playful romp full of clever ideas and jokes that asimov himself surely would have enjoyed io9.com says a fast-paced thriller stross always raises interesting questions that stick around in your brain Freya Nikamachi 47 has some major existential issues. She's the perfect concubine, designed to please her human masters, hardwired to become aroused at the mere sight of a human male. There's just one problem. She came off the production line a year after the human species were extinct. In the 200 years since the last human died, mankind's children have learned their lessons well and installed a rigid society. So when Freya has a run-in on Venus with a murderous aristocrat, she needs passage off the world in a hurry, and she can't be too fussy about how she pays her way. But if Venus was a frying pan, Mercury is the fire, and soon she's going to be running for her life, because the job she's taken as a courier has drawn her to the attention of the powerful and dangerous people, and they don't just want the package she's carrying, they want her soul. There you go, Charlie Stross, Saturn's children. Next up is a glance... Trade paperback called Retribution Falls, Chris Wooding. Now, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, or a few, probably about a month ago, about this one. You know, I've got the 
uncorrected manuscript proof and it's out now and it is a great book you know it's got a stunning cover on it you know so look out for this one rogues heists misadventures Frey is a roguish captain of the Kitty Jay and the leader of a small and highly dysfunctional group of layabouts. Frey and his gang run contraband, rob airships and generally make a nuisance of themselves, all the while avoiding the Coalition Navy frigates. A hot tip on a cargo freighter seems to be a great chance for a simple heist, but when the robbery goes wrong and the freighter explodes, Frey suddenly finds himself public enemy number one, with both the Coalition Navy and the hired bounty hunters after him. But Freya knows something they don't know. The freighter was rigged to explode and Freya's been framed to take the fall. To prove his innocence, he'll have to catch the real culprit, facing down gunfights, liars, lovers, dukes and demons along the way. It's going to take all his criminal talents to prove he's not the criminal you think he is. Chris Wooding is in his early 30s and has already signed his first Hollywood film deal and won several awards for his writing. He is the author of, amongst others, the Broken Sky series, which has sold over 200,000 copies in the US alone. He has travelled extensively, plays bass and guitar, and has recorded several albums with various bands and toured in Europe. His books have been published all over the world and translated in 19 languages. He is currently working on a film with a top Hollywood director. There you go. Look out for Retribution Falls. Chris Wooding. Next up is another Galance book, another trade paperback, priced at $12.99. This is Robert Holstock's Avalon. Now, I gave this my tip of the week over on the Sofa Notch show. Mythargo Wood was Robert Holstock's novel, fantasy novel that he put out and just came out to such critical acclaim. And this is the follow-up, Avalon. David Gemmell says, Robert Holstock is a wonderful writer. The sensational sequel to Mythargo Wood. Peter F. Hamilton says, Holstock has a beautiful, subtle imagination that conjures up worlds and events with inevitable ease, a writer of both heart and fire. The Times says, Robert Holstock is Britain's best fantasist. 25 years ago, Robert Holstock, one of the finest living crafters of myth, redefined fantasy literature with Mythargo Wood, which won the World Fantasy Award and the Grand Prix d'Imaginaire. Now he's given us the long-awaited sequel, Avalon, another haunting masterpiece of fantasy. Ryhope Wood, Mythargo Wood is an ancient and mysterious woodland in which are born, live and die phantasms from the distant past of human consciousness. Jack and Josabel were born deep in the wild wood, half human, half Mythargo, the children of Stephen Huxley and Gwenewith of the Green, legendary Celtic princess who was drawn from Stephen's primal dreams. They lived together in the ruined Roman villa surrounded by mystery. Jack and Jezebel are close, but their passions are divided. As they grow to adulthood, so Josabel becomes infatuated the very heart of the wood, which is known by many names. Lavendis... Avalon or Avalin. Jack, however, longs to find his father's family home, Oak Lodge, and the real world that goes with it. When Josabel disappears one winter's night, leaving no trace, the family is shattered. If Jack is to find her, he must take the long trek outwards to the real world. Through the wildwood part of him, Jack has discovered that Josabel is in great jeopardy. He must return from his own heart's desire and follow her in the path if he is to save his sister for her dreams have turned against her. There you go, Avalon, Robert Holstock. Final one is another one by Galance, Jani Fenn, Consorts of Heaven. Priced at twelve ninety nine. While she is searching for Damaru, her wayward sky-touched son, Kieran finds a naked, amnesic man lying unconscious on the mare, not far from the remote highland village. She saves his life and his name is Sias, Stranger, 
As she helps him to relearn all he has forgotten, she starts to dream of a future with him. Kieran is an outsider in the village and a rebellious, free-thinking widow, and she is about to lose Damaru, her only child, to an ancient and revered tradition. If he passes the test set by the Karaid, the living goddess who ruled the world, he will become a consort and Kieran will be left completely alone. On the journey to Dainas Emery's The City of Life, where Damaru will be tested, and Kieran explores places she's heard of only in her fireside stories. But there's more to this land of hers than she has ever dreamed, and slowly she begins to challenge the sureties she's lived by. The world is not the place she thought it was. And as his memory returns, so Sais discovers the full extent of the lie that Kieran and the people have been living, including the terrible secret of the heart of their world. But if he exposes that lie, he will change Kieran's world forever, and it won't stop there. This standalone novel is part of the Hidden Empire series, which started with Principles of the Angels. That is the new titles. Pick of the Week will go to Robert Holstock's Avalon. Do look out for those books. That is new titles, and that is Oral Delights, show number 92. I hope you've enjoyed it. Do think about supporting this old girl now. Come on, you've had a great show. Support the old girl with £2.50 donation to the monthly donations, which get you the sanatorium shows. It's a great way to support this show, you know, and I appreciate everyone that's doing that. Thank you so much. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Story Sofa, a fatigation procedure in